You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. After a quiet few weeks on Mid-Missouri's many stages, the theatre world is back in force this month with a host of new productions opening up. Also newly opened this month is the fabulous new University of Missouri's School of Music Building, a $24 million addition funded in large part by Rex and Jean Sinkerfeld. Later in the show, the University of Missouri's director of the School of Music, Dr Julia Gaines, will be telling us all about the new facility and what it means for young musicians in Columbia. First, though, we are stepping behind the curtains at Columbia Entertainment Company, where a new musical opens next Thursday. Legally Blonde, made famous on screen by actors Reese Witherspoon and Luke Wilson back in 2001, became a musical in 2007, with music and lyrics written by husband and wife team Lawrence O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin and the book by Heather Hack. So here's the story. Blonde sorority sister Elle Woods has the perfect life until her dreamboat boyfriend dumps her to go to law school. Not one to be cast aside, our smart and determined hero follows him to Harvard where she defies everyone's expectations while simultaneously realising that the world has so much more to offer than marriage to Warner Huntington III. And here to fill us in on the tribulations and trials, both emotional and legal, of the life of Elle Woods is the show's director and choreographer, Mark. Marvin Bias the fourth. Welcome to the show, Marvin. Thank you, Diana. Glad to be here. Now, I guess we should start with congratulations to you. Am I right in thinking you had a baby on January the seventh? You are. You are <laughs> correct. Thank you. And she has a fabulous name. Yes, Lorelai Marvella May. It seems like you've gifted her with the perfect stage name. Yes. Are you thinking We're ahead? Hopeful. Yes. <laughs> She'll make her debut on opening night. Oh, wow. Wow. I guess her first performance will be, what, you know, back kind of 2023, we should look for yes. in a young production somewhere. <laughs> so how have you found the last few weeks caring for a newborn and caring for a new production? That's a lot to take on. Very hectic. I have a wonderful partner and she has taken care of the newborn, but I still try to participate at home. Um, they spend a lot of time at the theater, which helps me not feel that I'm neglecting them. But as my fiance said, when I took the contract, I'll see you when the show's over. <laughs> That's a very understanding fiance. Yes. <laughs> so now you're relatively new to Columbia, right? Yes. You have a background in musical direction. Um, where you're working with church choirs and a church choral director. Yes. How hard is it to stay in your lane as the overall director and choreographer and let the music director do her thing? Very easy. We're temperamentally the same type of people, and she's she's brilliant. Uh, she's absolutely brilliant, so I just let her go. I let her go, um, and she does a brilliant job. They sound better than most of the recordings I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> So Legally Blonde is a super sugar-sweet tale about a super-privileged West Coast girl becoming a super-privileged East Coast girl while staying true to herself by spending lots of money on looking fabulous. It is about as waspy as it gets. What do you love about it? I love the music. I love that they could take a movie as iconic as Legally Blonde and make it 
a fun musical. There will be foot tapping. There will be smiling, people snapping in the seats. And there are so many moving moments where we really get to see Elle Woods on a deep level that I think is lacking in the film. Um, but she has beautiful ballad moments that just rip your heart out and you see her as a person. I think, I think it's a brilliant show. When you watch the movie, I haven't seen the play, I have seen the movie. I mean, it's, it's almost a surprise that it didn't become a musical first because it's, it's just ripe to be a musical. It is. I, I agree. <laughs> it is kind of shocking, the order of a sequence there. Have you read the original book? I have not. I didn't know it was based on an original book, but it is based on uh, the author's experiences at Stanford Law School. And then she wrote the book, which became the play, which became the film, which then six years later became the musical. But when I watched the film, I mean, there is music in the film. There is a soundtrack for that, but there's not really kind of song and dance numbers. Mm -hmm. But I keep expecting them. There are so many moments in the film when you think they're just going to break into a big dance number. Right. <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> in what way is the play different than the muse than the film oh i think the dance numbers that's a big change getting to see all of the characters as individuals and not centering solely on l woods is very different in the play uh, you get to experience the person who helps her study and you just get to see her hairdresser more up close and find out about the life she had before in a deeper more real raw way so i i think those are the big differences but you have to keep things like iconic costumes iconic um and so we are bound to the film in some way when it comes to that sort of Elle's look and her personality and her outfits but i think being able to see all of the characters development um is very different i mean it's, it's a very pink movie i'm yes. guessing it's a very pink <laughs> Very pink. Uh, tell us a little about the costumes that you have. Oh, she has some gorgeous looks. Uh, the scene where she goes out with Warner, she has this floor-length, gorgeous pink gown, lots of lace, beautiful. Um, even her navy looks good when she finally says, I'm going to do this, and I won't reveal, you know, the great costume reveal, but when she decides, no, I'm not going to go back to Malibu, I'm going to stay here and tough it out. That costume, every, if I were her, I'd wear it every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've really tried to think outside of the box with pink, um, trying to get different shades, trying to get different permutations of them into the set as well as the costumes. Now all the costumes are made specifically for the actors at CEC for that production. Do they do the actors take them home afterwards or do they kind of go into a, a store for future productions? They go into our shop unless it's a piece that someone was really in love with and they say I will buy it and then <laughs> okay. they get to take that piece home but everything will stay in CEC and be used in future. How many different sets are there? I mean it's in two acts but I mean they're in multiple places how do you manage that? Nine. If I had to pick a number, I'd say nine. Some we fudge a bit, but yeah, there are a lot of locations. And you have to store it in, in the wings when it's not right. being used. It's been down to the inch. Our set designer has assigned where things stay backstage. And the actors have done a good job of honoring it. Um, but there are a lot of set changes. That's one of the big challenges of a show like this. 
Right. Have you been, do you get involved as the director with set design or do you, again, do you let the stage designer work on that? I let them work on it, but they go ahead and they ask me a lot of questions and if I sign off on things, essentially, I'm not a, I took stagecraft, I can work a saw, but that's not... No one wants me to. Let's put it that way. Um, But I do try to be as helpful as I can and as involved in all aspects of the process as possible. Now, as well as directing the show, you're also the choreographer. And I know for me, just like walking and talking is difficult enough. But you're coaxing, acting, singing and moving in an artistically meaningful way whilst staying on the beat to people who do not do this for a living. I mean, you know, you have to remind yourself often that these are volunteers, Mm -hmm. they're community members, they're our neighbours and colleagues that just have given up their time to put this production together. So what is the hardest part of directing a musical? Coordination. (laughs) (laughs) Juggling. Juggling is the hardest part. Um, And it's easy when you're all three people because you know you're only robbing yourself. So if I'm the choreographer and the director, I can take more time here and then and then adjust. But like with Keisha, I don't want to stretch my time so far that she doesn't get all the time she needs for the music. It's a musical, not a dancical. Right, right. <laughs> um, so it, it is very challenging. And people are working day jobs. And they come in and they're tired. We're all tired. <laughs> I mean, but we, they work very hard and they care about it. They're very invested. How long do you have for rehearsals? How far in advance do you start with a, a production like this, which is complex and that there's multiple components people have to learn? We, we operate on, CEC operates on an eight week model. So we have eight weeks from auditions to opening night. Being from Kansas City, I'm used to five. So we were done blocking at five, and we've been spending time polishing, et cetera, um, in these last few weeks. And for people who are taking part, which is the hardest part to learn? I mean, presumably people come to you because they already have acting experience, they already maybe have vocal experience, they may not have done dance numbers. What's the trickiest part for people to get? The trickiest part would be the music, actually. It's very catchy, but when you look at it on the sheet music, it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. So it's a thankless job. Once they have it, they have it. And the same with the choreography, because we've reimagined the show as a dance show, unlike a lot of the other productions, they've got to learn tap and they may never have tapped. They've got to learn hip hop and they may never have hip hop. So those two, but I'd say music for sure is the hardest. Well, the play is in two acts. In act one, our heroine is propelled through a sad breakup with her dreamboat boyfriend, Warner Huntington III. And against all odds for a fashion retail major, she takes the LSATs and she gets into Harvard Law School. And in act two, it sees her working on a case at law school involving a fitness queen, an idol of hers, um, and the murder of the fitness queen's billionaire husband. So let's listen to a clip of music from act two. This is called Take it like a man and it features laura bell bundy and christian ball from the original 2007 stage production what is this place it's called a department store it's it's beautiful First, a deep breath. Take it all in. 
Feel all those halogens warming your skin. Smell how they pump in pure oxygen. See, they care. Love. Excuse me? Love. The new fragrance from Chanel. Oh, no thank you. I know you're scared. Nevertheless, think of the people you want to impress. Swallow your pride for me, just not yes, and prepare. Cause something's in the air. I think it's love. Exactly. Here you'll become what you're supposed to be. You think you can't, but you can. Think of the guy you want most to be. Here's your chance to make it, so take it like a man. What does she want? Not really sure. Why can't we leave things the way that they were? Why can I never say no to her? What's that smell? Subtext by Calvin Klein. That I don't like. That's kind of neat. Guys who wear that get beat up on my street. Still, I've come this far. I can't retreat in my shell. I'm in the hands of hell. What the hell? Here you'll become what you're supposed to be. You think you can't, but you can. Think of the guy you want most to be. Here's your chance to make it, so take it like a Change right before my eyes. Don't watch me change. Look at him striking a pose. His confidence grows. He'll blow like a rose. It's just clothes. God, I love shopping for them. Okay, this is nice. They walk in a two, they walk out a ten. Is this the price? Don't worry, this is my treat. There's someone I'd like you to meet. Whoa. I look like Warner. That was just a clip of Take It Like a Man featuring Laura Bell Bundy and Christian Ball from the original 2007 stage production of Legally Blonde. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Marvin Bias IV, who is the director and choreographer of Columbia Entertainment Company's upcoming production of Legally Blonde. So, Marvin, set the scene for us in that last clip. What is happening in the story at that point? They have been working on the trial and... Elle is really trying to do something nice for Emmett, and she's trying to get him to take his look more seriously as a lawyer. So she takes him in his ratty corduroy to this beautiful department store. He's never been in one. He doesn't get it at all. And of course, because it's a musical, there's this beautiful dance number as they're changing him, and he's looking at the price tag and going, no way. She connects with him. She really connects with him in that moment. And tell us who Emmett is. Emmett is the TA for her law professor, um, and he had a rough life. He had a rough life growing up and worked his way through high school, through college, and he helps her study once she's at Harvard and sort of toe the line as a law student. 
and he's in sharp contrast to this kind of dreamboat boyfriend who, who yes. isn't isn't necessarily terribly bright. Maybe got into Harvard because his dad made a phone call. Yes. Whereas Emmett is the brilliant lawyer. Yes, um, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about putting together an orchestra for community theatre. Your two core musicians, without whom really you don't have a production, are probably piano and drums to keep everything going. And the licensed orchestration for this show includes three keyboards, bass, guitar, drums, percussion, two woodwind parts, two trumpets, trombone and solo violin. But I'm guessing that isn't what you have. How, how do you find musicians that can tackle this kind of complex production? We have a wonderful pool of musicians at CEC, which is shared with the other local theaters. And the pit conductor really took care of all of it. And we do have the three keyboards. We have everything except the violinist, but a keyboard you know, fakes That's that fantastic. for us. So it is a very full pit. Um, I think violin is the only thing we lost, and they're playing it very, very well. It's hard. It's a hard score, but I, I it's been a while since I've seen a show that takes three keyboards. Yes, that's huge. I'm always a little surprised that more productions don't just opt for taking the licensed soundtrack because it seems like it would be a lot easier. Is it easier having a soundtrack? It is easier so far as having the music learned in the pit because all you have to do is pop it in. As the actors, it is much harder to sing with the boxed recording. They don't have the freedom to go faster or slower. They don't have the freedom to even act in the middle of a song. They ha they are bound absolutely by the tempos that are set. Um, and so we really try to avoid it if we can. But some shows work. This show it would be a nightmare for the actors with a boxed recording. I mean, generally in Colombia, there are no soundtracks. Everybody has an orchestra. Yes. Um, even with the challenges of space. But what are the main difficulties? You know, you're all, the actors are all rehearsing, you're singing, you're listening to the soundtrack. The orchestra is rehearsing elsewhere. And then at some point in the last couple of weeks, mm -hmm. you have to dovetail mm -hmm. both sides together. Where is the challenge in that? The challenge is we work a lot with recordings through the rehearsal process just so that they're dancing at the tempo they should be. We try to really communicate with the pit, and Keisha has done a great job of attending pit rehearsals so that she knows what tempo they're at when she rehearses the ensemble. But it is tricky because they have to work together, uh, and they're it's not like you're staring at each other. There's costumes, there's set pieces, there's so many things, and you've got to communicate non-verbally to the conductor so that the pit is where you want to be at that moment. Oh, it's very challenging. It's amazing people ever figure it out, um, but they do it. They do it. <laughs> so you're a week out from opening. You open next Thursday. And like we said before we came on air, I'm guessing the week before is, is probably the most stressful time because it seems like there are so many things that still have to happen. But magically, it all comes together at that final moment. So where are the challenges right now? What are you like, okay, we've got to get this smoothed out in the next seven days? One of the big challenges is getting the showtime back to what it was. Um, so the first act has mysteriously gotten longer, and it was down to a very wonderful time. So now we have to adjust that, and there are ways to do it. We have to tighten the transitions, things like that. Set pieces are working well, but there, this needs repaired or this needs painted, you know just run-of-the-mill things, and then you add costumes this weekend, and it's, <laughs> you know, you're looking at something else. But they're really doing very well. The reality, I think, will set in tonight that, oh, 
we have less than a week and I think that's going to give so much energy in all the parts of the production that they'll pull it off. What makes it get longer? Just bringing the orchestra in and that, that extra component? Part of it, the tempos, that extra component, if something gets off and we have to stop or sort of guess at where we are, but people missing entrances because they're putting on the costume for the first time, that'll do it. Uh, people being on a mic f for the first time in the process, and so they love the sound of their voice, so they talk much, much slower in a scene where the energy needs to keep moving, you know? All of those things, you add up those little fractions, and then you've got 20 minutes that you really don't need to have <laughs> that people are going, oh my goodness, can I get to the restroom and not miss something? So... We're trying. Snap, snap. <laughs> Let's listen to another clip from the original cast recording. This is probably one of the most famous scenes from the movie and the absolutely perfect dance number for a musical. It's called Bend and Snap. It's sung by Annalie Ashford, Dakina Moore, Laura Bell Bundy and the cast ensemble. And this is from Act Two. Bend and Snap from Act 2 of Legally Blonde, which opens at Columbia Entertainment Company next week. Last question, Marvin. You have a, an amazing cast. I cannot think of an actor better suited to play Elle Woods than the person you have, the fabulous Michelle Curry. And you also have a second and alternate Elle in Natalie Akehoff, who's going to do, I think, both the Sunday productions. Mm -hmm. um, there are 30 people in the cast altogether, as well as... A dog. A dog. <laughs> Tell us about the dog. Paulette has a dog that her uh, former partner kept from her. And she, and part of Elle's journey, is trying to do something nice for Paulette um, and trying to see if they can get her dog back. So we have a little pooch who's part of our cast and he's warming up to the actors and his <laughs> owner's just been so great. Now in the film, Elle has her own little pooch in her, a little, little purse dog, but there's no purse dog. I guess that could be a stuffed dog. <laughs> it, yes, yes. <laughs> 
50 foot rule. <laughs> My first act guest today has been director and choreographer Marvin Bias IV. His production of the musical comedy Legally Blonde opens at Columbia Entertainment Company next Thursday, February the 13th, and it runs for three weekends. Tickets cost $14 for adults, except on Thursdays when tickets are only $10. So you can go to opening night for just $10. You can book tickets online at cectheatre.org, and that's C-E-C-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org. And you can also give them a call on 5 573-474-3699. Thank you so much, Marvin. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to Dr. Julia Gaines, director of the University of Missouri's School of Music. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Many people in the arts create magic in spaces where we just have to make do. Sometimes we're able to contort a space to make it fit our needs, but most often we live within the restrictions of our surroundings and we create magic anyway. We all hope that an angel investor will descend so that our dream home will become a reality, but rarely does that happen. Except it did for my next guest. Dr. Julia Gaines is the director of the School of Music at the University of Missouri and last Saturday cut the ribbon on the school's new 47,000 square foot, $24 million home. In their case, their angel investor was Jean Sinkerfeld, a musician and arts philanthropist who has a passion for new music composition. Over the past 14 years, Jean has donated $17 million to the school's composition programs, $10 million of which she agreed could be earmarked for this new home for music. And as an added note, this week she and her husband Rex also received the Missouri Art Council's Art Hero Award for Philanthropy to the Arts. For the university, it is the biggest gift to the arts in its history and the first new building in the College of Arts and Science since 1972. Dr. Julia Gaines, it is a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, your new home is so sparkling and new. I'm wondering whether it's like when you get a new car or a sofa and everyone's afraid they're going to be the first person <laughs> to spill their coffee or scratch a wall. So think of, um, I know I saw you there Saturday, so think of that wood floor. That is the equivalent of the new car because I've made everybody go to plastic stands. I put new plastic feet on all the chairs and I'm like, okay, it's going to get a scratch. I just need to be ready for it, but I'm trying my best. (laughs) No coffee stains yet though. No coffee stains. In fact, one of the more, um, I'm not going to say controversial, but one of the more interesting things I've asked is for the brass players to clean up their condensation (laughs) after practice. I'm a drummer. So we don't make a mess when we play. But I'm telling you, these brass players, there's a lot of condensation that builds up in their horns. And it just gets all over my nice wood floor. It gets so, sticky. Sticky you know. pretty quickly. It's not really sticky. It's just um, you slip on it. Uh. You can slip on it with the wood floor. So, I mean, you can probably slip on it with any floor. But I'm just <laughs> I'm being a little protective right now. I think I'd be the same. Now, you've been the director of the School of Music since 2014. And back then, you said your main goal was to try and get a new building and have the fine arts building renovated. Were you being prescient or a total optimist? <laughs> um, I'm an optimist by nature. So I will say I was just being optimistic. Um, I think... You know, I've told people this a couple of times. There's nobody else that has lived in our facilities the longest. I'm the I'm the only one that has lived in our poor facilities that long. Because in Loeb Hall, 
where which is the renovated cafeteria, none of the other faculty were there. All the faculty that are there now are new. So the passion that you can have after working in a renovated cafeteria for 18 years and then dealing with the fine arts building and all its issues as, as the administrator for six, you know, I, I was pretty motivated to get this <laughs> building built. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so go ahead and wax lyrical for us about your new 47,000 square foot building. So it's so beautiful. I love just the, the students and the faculty are commenting every day on how it's changing their playing, changing their teaching. Um, multiple people have said, I didn't know I sounded like that and I really need to do this to improve. I don't have to play my bow so hard. I didn't realize I was overplaying. I can hear myself tune up to the strings way in front of me now. I mean, so there's just comments that are coming in every day. This is due to the absolute wonderful acoustics. So I told the designers from the start, you can make it look fine on the outside. You know, I don't want it to be an embarrassment. It looks fine, but that's not my main concern. It's got to be just of most exceptional quality when you get on the interior side of those buildings. And I think when you when you see it, you'll see that. It's a, it's a contemporary building. It's modern on the inside, that polished concrete floor. Um, is very adds a very linear monochromatic uh, you know look. It's got exposed mechanical ductwork. You can see inside everything. There's a ton of windows, creating some really just really basic flat surfaces. So the outside of it is nice, but then of course you walk inside and the gorgeous wood floor and all the walls and all the acoustical treatment. Um, that's clearly the priority and was the priority for me. So what is the state of the art in acoustics and technology these days for a music building? So we have in that large room where we were Saturday, there are three acoustic zones. And we had the, the acoustical designers. They asked us a lot about the ensembles that would be in there. What instrumentation? How many? And then they created square footage that we would need to accommodate that many musicians. So for sure, our university band has 90 players in it this year. Lots of brass, lots of woodwinds. Our orchestra is 70. So we needed a lot of volume to accommodate that level, uh, to accommodate appropriately that level of performance. Of course, we've been using those ensembles in our renovated cafeteria for years. Um, but so they then told us, okay, this is the volume you need. You need three zones. You need a hard surface on the bottom, a hard surface on top. So we have the beautiful clouds on top. You need some acoustical curtains that you can pull for the different ensembles. And you need a lot of diffuser panels so that the sound waves do not bounce off at the same. We wanted sound waves filling that space. Whereas if everything's straight, it just makes a plus sign. Your sound waves are fine, and that's fine for speaking. But when you have that quant that volume of actual music in all those different ranges, um, it was really important to have these three different zones. And all of our spaces are like that. They have some sort of zone configuration um, designed specifically for the number of people and the type of instruments that are going to be in the room. Now, as well as the instrument room, the, the huge room, you also have a choral the room. The choral hall, right. That's actually our only performing space. We knew this building was going to be designed mainly for classroom and student use, but we were going to try and be as efficient as we could to make the choral hall also a nighttime performance space. So it also has specialty lighting. It has better recording capability. Um, it was designed a little bit more for that evening performance uh, situation. It will only seat 100, so it's a very intimate experience. The students have already commented about how different it is than performing on a big stage. Like, I feel like right, I'm right in front of the audience, and you can actually do different things. It's the same with theater, you know. A small theater, if you're doing a play or something, is a real different experience than the Fox Theater. So it's a great experience for them. 
And there are recording studios there too. Yeah, also on the first floor. So we have the large instrumental room, the choral hall, and then this state-of-the-art recording studio. Now, it's not built out yet, so the equipment um, is not in there yet, but it starts March 2nd and will take about six weeks. It was all specialty equipment that we've been looking at and looking at ordering. We also have a designer for that studio to help us, and uh, we'll be putting that together in March and April. Hopefully this summer we can start with some faculty projects to really get our feet wet and see how we're going to be able to use that space. Tell me about the design process and how involved you were with the architects. I mean, were you looking at blueprints from day one onwards? From day one. Absolutely day one. I have sad blueprints in my office. I did something with the building every day. So the design process, we have a building committee of faculty. And we literally, the first time we met for an all-day event with our designers, they gave us building blocks, literal colored building blocks. And they said, okay, this is how many building blocks you need for the instrumental room. And now you tell us where you want them to go. And so we were like playing with Legos all day. I have pictures of us putting these colored building blocks together. But after that day, we kind of said... This is where everything needs to go, and we want these two to be close together, and they kind of wanted to get our input on what's going to work best for you guys. We knew we couldn't design the whole, we knew we couldn't build the whole plan because our designers designed the entire building plus a concert hall for us, and that would have been well over $50 million, and we didn't have that much money then. So the phase one, we had to kind of say, all right, what's critical? What do we really need for this phase one? And they helped us kind of put that together. And from then on, I mean, I've had them on speed dial. I work with our construction project managers all the time. So um, there hasn't really been a day go by where I've not done something with the building. So I'm sure the wish list of facilities you wanted for the building was way longer than, you know, what your budget was. Did you have to give up anything that you really wanted in phase one? Well, we don't all get to be together. I mean, we would just dearly love for the full faculty to be able to be in the same space. Some of the faculty that are in the same space now haven't seen their colleagues like this in a decade. I mean, it's just amazing. Again, these comments of faculty are saying, like, I've already got a project with somebody that I would never would have come to fruition if we didn't see each other more. So there's 20 faculty still over in the Fine Arts Building. That would have been really nice to get all of our colleagues over there. Um, you know, there's more classrooms there. Of course, it's that it's now now we're seeing it's that acoustically designed space that we miss the most. The students don't want to practice in the fine arts building at all because they're realizing how I guess I can use the word bad they are now that they have a real space. They're like, we don't want to ever go in there again. So it's going to become more of a stark difference as we move forward doing more things in the new building. What about energy consumption? I have to ask this. Did you include energy saving components or is this space a bit of an energy hog because it's so huge? You would think, right. I think we're going to be, the, the architects wanted to be uh, a lead building at the silver level. So that that's not going to be awarded until we're a little bit further with the finishing up all these little details. But it was absolutely designed with energy saving. That's one of the reasons you see all those windows. And they did windows all the way up to the big grand staircase where, where light could come through. All the offices, when, when we leave, the heat goes down to an unoccupied level. So when I come in, it's really cold. <laughs> it takes about 15 minutes to warm up. Motion sensors everywhere. Um, the restrooms do not have any paper in them. They're all the dryer hand uh, dryers. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I know that they've done the same thing with the toilets and there's no hot water, so it's just cold water. So I know that they have done a lot of energy saving things and I hope that we'll be able to be awarded that silver status. Do you have space for solar panels on the roof? <laughs> there are no solar panels on the roof right now, but I can imagine we have space for them. There's a lot of space up there, so uh, I'm not sure that was taken into consideration. I know that those are expensive to install. That first time, I know they pay off 
But um, I don't think that was a consideration with the money we had. Mm. I'm sure you've directly heard or eavesdropped a lot of comments by students and faculty who'll be using the building. Have any of them really struck a chord with you? Oh, yeah, every day, every day. Um, An email just came through the other day. Julia, I feel like my students are a whole different level of student. They're practicing more because they really enjoy being in the practice rooms. There's a level of going into orchestra where everybody just has stepped up more. Um, Another faculty member said they just seem more professional. I, I never considered our students unprofessional at all, but yet there is a difference. They're coming in more prepared, more serious. And that's because there's a facility that matches their level of, um, they're they're trying to rise to the facility level. Um, We hadn't really considered that. Uh, Of course, I knew it would probably be better for our students, but to actually see it um, has been amazing. I talked to the students a lot. I asked them, how's it going? You know, how are, and for the first thing they say is the practice rooms, which I kind of thought it would be the rehearsal halls first. But the first thing the students say is, I love the practice rooms, which is what we want. I want them in there, you know, some of them three and four hours a day. So they need to like that space. <laughs> now, you mentioned where you were before was a cafeteria, but where have you been for the last 18 years or, or the previous years of the music school? So the instrumental faculty, or, or I shouldn't say it's the large ensemble, so band, orchestra, percussion, jazz, anybody associated with those, which is five or six faculty, have been in Loeb Hall, which was the cafeteria for McReynolds and McDavid for many years. I've I have friends that say, hey, that's where I ate lunch. And that's where our large ensemble rehearsal was. A very short ceiling, not big enough, nothing on the floor, on the walls. Um, We were able to kind of renovate the downstairs where they actually did food preparation um, to make it a little bit better. But the first few years, we I saw the freezer lockers that the kids practiced in. It was awful. <laughs> and I actually have a freezer locker that I'm keeping to remind me of that. So um, that's where we were. And then the choir was in McKee in the upper level gymnasium area. I think they did like ballet classes in there 50 years ago, something like that movement. But it was the women's gymnasium overall. I mean, a gymnasium is not an awful place to sing. Go into a bathroom and sing. We like that. But what they have now is just amazing. And we're actually keeping the key for some of our opera programs. So we share it with theater now. So it worked that we could have two rehearsals at once chorally. So we're actually having a couple classes still in McKee. So even though it was maybe inappropriate for you, as fast as you moved out, did somebody just move in behind you? <laughs> take over they don't have to space. sing in there anymore. Theater loved it for movement and large production and staging, and it was great for them. Now, to what extent does this new facility augment your Mizzou New Music Initiative project that happens every summer? Well, I think the biggest thing we're going to see with that is in the recording studio. It has been difficult for us to get good quality recordings of all this new music that's being written. Because of Gene's gifts, we have a lot of new music that we'd like to record. We'd like to get up on a website so other people can hear it. What we're doing now is we have it written, we do a performance, we record it, and then nobody hears it again because we've not gotten it into a a platform that's easy for us to maintain. So um, I think that's probably going to be the biggest thing. I don't think there's any more pieces necessarily going to be written. We already have plenty. Um, I think the faculty already collaborate there and do projects together. Um, So I think that's going to be the recording studio that that we see the biggest uh, improvement in. And of course, the big donor to that program, as well as to the music school, is Jean Sinkerfeld. And at last week's award ceremony, it made me laugh, she said that she had told the Vice Chancellor for Advancement, Tom Hiles, that she was not interested in donating for buildings and only wanted to give to programming. Many, many times. So how did you convince her otherwise? (laughs) I've had people ask me that a couple of times. 
she told Dr. Freund, our faculty member that works with her a lot, I don't want to do the building. I don't want to do the building. I think what happened is both Stefan and I just, we kept talking to her about the limits we have with the current facilities. We had no recording studio. Um, she, she was really honest about getting this music out, and we would tell her that's difficult. We don't have any place, you know, anytime we record, we got to pack up everything and go somewhere. So we just kind of continued to tell her that it was a hindrance, that it was a limitation. We, we, we were starting to tell her no that we couldn't do some of the stuff that she wanted. And we don't tell her no very often, <laughs> but um, we were just, we simply can't do that. And this would be, this would make a big difference if we could, you know, have this building. So I think it was just a literally hours of conversations um, and Tom continuing to ask and she finally gave in. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Now, now her relationship goes back several years and it all really began as a result of 9-11. Tell me a little bit about the history of Jean's interest in composition and how Mizzou got involved. Yeah, so we didn't know this, but after 9-11, I guess, this is what she tells us in the story she tells us, um, her cousin was inspired to write a piece of music and ended up either playing it for her or showing her a recording. I don't remember which one. And she was just enthralled. It was like... You mean normal people can write music? I, I think she was just surprised that this wasn't reserved for the super elite. And she started thinking about it and realizing this is a really great outlet. It was an outlet for him to be expressive in a situation that a lot of people don't know, didn't know how to be expressive. And um, it really moved her to the point where she's like, boy, you know, this would be really helpful to kids. I think if kids knew that they could write music, they probably don't think using the word composer might have been a little too ostentatious for a six-year-old or something. But she wanted to say, no, you can write a poem. You can write a piece of music. You can do this. And that's when she said, I want to start a program for kids. And that's kind of how it all started. And that was back in, I think, 2006. Yeah, I think she came into Dr. Platt's office in 2005, and we had the first competition in 2006. But she literally walked in out of the blue, whether it was with Chancellor Deaton or Dr. Platt. I'm not sure who she spoke with first. I know Ann Deaton was involved a lot, too. But it kind of surprised everybody. They're like, holy cow, this woman wants to donate a lot of money for this. <laughs> And then having started this project for children, the original music project, then the students or the high school students said, well, and the students said, well, what, what about us? So the, then it morphed into something else. That was the college students. So the, the kids program was K through 12. She started, a, a, you know, a kindergartner could write a piece of music or a senior could write a piece of music. So we did that. And then the, the college students were helping out with this program. They're like, wow, this would be really great. She asked that question, what about us? I don't remember if they actually asked it that obnoxiously, but it was a conversation of, wow, it would be really nice if we could have some composing opportunities. <laughs> so um, she started saying, okay, well, what if we had a summer camp so that you could, um, the, the kids could come and have a summer camp and then we offer scholarships for you guys to help or, you know, how, if we can give you some scholarships to be a composer here. And then we just started developing program after program until we just started bundling it into one package called the Mizzou New Music Initiative. Which is fantastic. And it takes place every summer. And I really encourage people to go to it because it is such a treasure. And again, it's one of those things that I think sometimes slides under people's awareness in Columbia. Yeah. And it is such a great event to go and sit in the Missouri Theater and listen to seven or eight world premieres by young composers. Yeah, that's our international festival that's in July every year. It is. It does kind of fly under the radar. You know, she said this once Saturday, 
not necessarily all new music is good music to everybody. I agree. But that is the point of a university. We are about discovery and excellence, and some experiments don't work, and some poems aren't great, and some paintings aren't great, but that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give opportunity and chance, and that's really what at the heart of this festival. Well, I reached out to Jean's cousin, Alex, and I asked if we might play a clip from his piece of music that he wrote about America after 9-11 on the show, and here it is. If her arms were an ocean, they'd reach out vast and deep, they'd harbor in any weary, and all those who dared to dream. And if her heart were a love song, yeah, the words would be heard, let it be. America, America, this place where the world comes to dream. America, America, my sweet, sweet land of liberty. Now if her eyes were a beacon, through no veil would they not be seen. Through every wall of oppression, Onto the darkest streets They'd shine a light on freedom When no sound of freedom rings America, America Your guiding light can be seen America, America What a price some have paid to be free and if her face were a rainbow, how beautiful it'd be With every hue of the heavens and no colors left unseen And if her voice were her conscience, I swear she'd cry out, I have a dream America, America, what a long, long road to harmony America, America, God bless our direction and speed. America, America, there's no place I'd rather be. Thank you so much to Alex Jenner Georges for sharing that piece of music with us. He wrote it in response to 9 11 and it's simply called America. Now, Julia, it seems sort of churlish to mention this within a week of your grand opening, but this is only phase one of what is altogether a $74 million project, which was approved in 2016 by the Board of Curators. So that still leaves a $50 million fundraising push still ahead. Where are you in that whole process? Well, we haven't really started. And I actually don't know that that number is accurate anymore. I would have to go back and look at that. Has it gone up? No, I don't. (laughs) It seems high to me. So I would have to go back and look at that number again. We, We would very much like to leave the Fine Arts Building. Um, with all of our faculty and classrooms and Whitmore Recital Hall. So we we kind of need phase two to be a concert hall because otherwise if we take Whitmore out, we have no place to really play recitals like that. The one we're building 
the more than we've built in the St. Field Music Center is only 100 seats and Whitmore is 240. So we have a lot of performing that needs to be done there. So, you know, we haven't, um, there's no announcement about phase two yet. It's certainly in the discussion with the chancellor on what could be done. Um, there's, you know, there's another big building project going on campus right now. So there's some um, interest on making sure things are started that are new and that things are, are being finished. So I would love to be able to say we can make an announcement in the fall. That's not guaranteed by this point. I think it's a, I think we have about 35 left. So a little shy than the 50. And, you know, perhaps the Singfields would continue with their gift. They have not indicated that at this point, but I hope that they liked what we have built so far that it might be a consideration. So, you know, I'm hopeful we can move on that in the fall. But the main component will be a bigger recital hall. Yeah, we would really like a 500-seat concert hall is the word I'm going to use. I want a stage big enough to fit our orchestra and our university band. Remember I told you our university band is 90 people? We don't fit on the Missouri Theater stage. <laughs> we might fit on the Jesse Hall stage, but there's 2,000 people in that audience, and that's way too big for anything that we would need. So I would love somewhere about 500 seats with a stage big enough for our orchestra. Um, we don't have anything like that in town. There is not a concert hall, something dedicated for instrumental and acoustic music, even choral music. Our choir has to go sing in churches because they don't have an appropriate space. So all that talk that I did about the practice rooms and the classrooms and the rehearsal rooms being so great, we now are coveting that and yearning for that in our concert hall. You're a marimba percussionist. You've performed as a soloist across the United States and around the world. And since you've become director of the school, you've taken on a much more administrative role. So I guess you've had to cut back a bit on teaching and performance. Do you miss that? Um, I, I get asked that every once in a while. I don't necessarily miss it because it's just a different type of interaction. Whereas I worked with students on a regular basis, you know, helping them through things. Now I get to work with the faculty and help them through their projects. And I'm not going to say they're students by any means. They're much more my peers. But it's still the same type of mentoring interaction. Um, certainly learning about the administrative parts of the university has been a great learning curve. I love learning curves. I always am wanting to learn. Um, I still teach the steel band ensemble, so I still get to do my fun stuff. And I did end up finishing book two of my, of my marimba book series. So I've gotten a little bit of more academic work in there. Um, I do have a marimba at home. It doesn't get played as much as I'd like, but uh, my son gets on there every once in a while, and I get on there every once in a while. So I'd like to do a little bit more of that, and hopefully maybe with a little more free time with the building opening, I can. <laughs> now, you actually have an event coming up tonight. You have a Friends of Music fundraising event. Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, this is um, something that we've done for the last five years. It's a dinner and a, a music event. Our jazz band's playing tonight. And uh, we invite people to come and just learn a little bit about our Friends of Music organization. It is our scholarship organization. We raise about $70,000 a year. All of that goes straight to student scholarships. And, uh, you know, everybody knows that we get the, we need to attract students here. And, of course, having scholarships is very, very helpful for our musicians. Um, so this is one of the events that we use to kick off the 2020 campaign. Talking of attracting students, does this new building make you a lot more competitive with people like the Eastman School and Juilliard and those huge schools around the country? You know, I'm not even that worried about competing with Eastman. I want to be better than their high school. 
that was the problem. They're coming to us from St. Louis and Kansas City schools that have much better facilities at their high school than we did at the flagship university. It was embarrassing. So I think we're going to be very competitive with that. There's no way their practice rooms match our practice rooms. So we're at least going to say with phase one, I can at least be better than their high schools. It's probably comparable to something at UMKC, the conservatory there, and maybe some of the other music schools in the state. So it will at least raise us up to the bar of what everybody else was doing. We were well below before now. Are there any other events besides tonight's fundraiser that people can come and listen to music in the building? I think the first um, recital that will be open for the public is the Chamber Soloist event on Sunday the 16th, I believe. That's where we're going to have about 15 string players working on some uh, chamber music, more of the Bach, Haydn, Beethoven style. So it will be a little bit of older music, not necessarily new music. Some people like that, some people don't. Um, but that's going to be one of the first opportunities. We also have all of our concerts on our School of Music website that people can check out. And if they want to get updates, we send out an email every Tuesday that tells what the week's concert events are, kind of like athletics does. But I think I did it before athletics. I think they stole my idea. <laughs> so we do that too. And you can sign up on our website to get that weekly email. Can people just come in and wander around? It, it is. It is open. You know, our students, the practice rooms are not locked upstairs because our students come up there all the time. Hopefully they'll all be busy, but they can certainly come in and walk around, look at it. If they want to stop by the administrative suite on the second floor, I'll say hi. Thank you so much. My second act guest today has been Julia Gaines, director of the University of Missouri's School of Music and resident of the school's brand new Jean and Rex Sinkerfeld Music Center. You can buy advanced tickets for tonight's A Night at the Palace Friends of Music fundraiser by calling 573-882-2606. Tickets are $50 and include hors d'oeuvres at 6 dinner at 6.30 and a performance of classic Bing, Fitzgerald, Clooney and Sinatra numbers by the Concert Jazz Band at 7.30. Thank you so much, Julia. You're welcome. Happy to be here. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. This evening is first Friday in the North Village Arts District, so if you are out and about, here are some places you can drop into. Sega Browdis Gallery opens its February exhibit this evening with five artists in the main gallery and works by New York painter Thelma Apple and abstract works by Mary Abbott in the New East Gallery. Short Form improv troupe The Ponies will be at Talking Horse Theatre with family shows starting at 7 and 8 and The Ponies After Dark for 18s and over at 9pm. The shows are on a pay-what-you-can donation basis with a suggested donation of $10 for each performance. And all proceeds from the evening go directly to Talking Horse to fund events, classes and productions. At Artworks Studio, there's an open craft night tonight to which you should bring your own supplies. Plus there is live music and a bevy of artists at Artlandish Gallery from 6 till 9. At Stevens College Playhouse, their production of the Jane Austen romantic comedy Pride and Prejudice is on stage this weekend only. Evening showtimes are 7.30, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets cost $16. At the Blue Note tonight, St. Louis blues artist Mike Zito presents a tribute to Chuck Berry with Columbia's own Loose Loose opening the evening. Showtime is 8pm and tickets are $10. And at Rose Music Hall, progressive bluegrass band Miles Over Mountain perform with Boone Howlers and Willie Carlisle. That shows at 9pm and you'll need $6 to get in.
Tomorrow morning at 10.30, the True False team will be on hand at Daniel Boone Regional Library to tell you how to fest. There is no cost to attend and all are welcome. At Sega Browdis Gallery, it is Slow Art Saturday from 11 to 2, when you're encouraged to wander at a slow pace through the gallery with a complimentary cocktail. Tomorrow evening, Chamber Ensemble Vox Nova perform with the Columbia Chamber Choir to present an American tapestry celebrating a variety of homegrown choral music. Their performance will be at Sacred Heart Catholic Church at 7.30 and tickets are $20 on the door. At Rose Music Hall, local blues rock band Mercury Trio, along with some local gunslinger guitarists, presented Jimi Hendrix Salute. Tickets are $6 for the 8pm show tomorrow night. And at Talking Horse Theatre, long-form improv group, the Stable Boys are back tomorrow night with their irreverent take on the awards season in an evening they're called calling the Golden Gluey Awards. Tickets, if there are any still available, are $10 and the fun starts at 7.30. Do get tickets in advance for that show if you're going to go. Sunday afternoon, the 10th annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival returns to the Blue Note with films about the moon, Greenland, the deep sea, grizzly bears, native American seed preservation, coal ash, bugs, and a lot more. Doors open at 1 p.m. and tickets are $15 for adults and $10 for children. Sunday evening, the chorus, Columbia's LGBTQQA to Z Community Choir, has its first rehearsal of 2020. The group is open to all queers, trans, and all genders and allies. No auditions are required, and rehearsal is at Unity Center at 7 p.m. Monday evening, the University Concert Series presents the musical An American in Paris at Jesse Hall at 7pm. Tickets cost from $46. And at the Daniel Boone Regional Library, folk musicians Dave Parra and Paul Foch will be playing their arsenal of instruments and performing a selection of river songs. Their free concert is 7pm on Monday evening. Ragtag Cinema continues to celebrate Black History Month with a series of films under the umbrella of black independence. This week's film is The Watermelon Woman, a 1996 tongue-in-cheek documentary-style survey of black and white lesbian culture, tropes and the rifts between them. The film shows on Tuesday and Thursday next week at 7pm. Wednesday evening, visiting hip-hop architect Dr. Craig Wilkins will be giving his keynote speech at Jesse Hall as the final event in this year's Visual Arts and Design Showcase, which we featured on last week's show. Dr. Wilkins' talk is from 5 till 6pm, after which there will be a community awards ceremony. At Skylark Bookshop next Wednesday, author Gabriel Bump will be talking about his debut novel, Everywhere You Don't Belong, and that's at 6pm. In the Studio 4 Theatre on Hit Street, the Mizzou New Play series opens next Wednesday and runs through the 16th. It'll feature 26 new plays, ranging from silly to serious. There are new plays at each performance, so you may have to go more than once. Evening showtime is 7.30 and tickets cost $7. And if you are a true-false fan, next Wednesday is when this year's festival films are announced. And finally, in Jefferson City, next Thursday, it is opening night for Capital City Productions' first full production in their new Wicker Lane home. Bodyguard the Musical will run for two weekends, with dinner theatre tickets costing $38. Doors open at 6 for the 7.30pm show. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. With me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the Mid-Missouri Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.